guys and welcome to another episode of the Limits podcast where we are all about discussing education and its intersection with society. We are so glad to have you listening to us from wherever it is that you are, whether that be England, whether that be the US, whether that be Europe, wherever you are. And so today's lesson plan, the title is It's Always Me. Over-policing of black students. I am your host for today, and my name is Mammoth. So, brief, brief scenario. So, in the last school that I was teaching him, had a student, so it was an independent school. Majority of the students were of a white European background. And there was one particular student, there was an incident that took place on an extracurricular activity. So, it was a trip to... It was like a debating um, event that they went to. And it was a trip to a debating event. And a comment was made by one of the students and the teacher who was with them on this trip automatically assumed it was the black student, one of the few black students who was on this trip. Now, what had happened is that came back to school, everyone was talking about it. And the teacher had gone straight to the head teacher to say that this is what the student said, um, I found it very, very disrespectful. I found it very rude and there should be quite a high sanction for this student. Now it came back that the comment that was made was not actually made by the student that she wanted to sanction. And so all the students had, you know, sort of rallied together and been like, okay, no, this is unfair. Like she wasn't actually the one that made the comment, but the teacher was adamant. It was her. I heard what I heard and this is what's going to happen. Um, It went sort of, you know, down the lines where she was about to be suspended for the comment that she made. And essentially it took myself and another teacher to sort of explain this is actually what took place. The students have corroborated the same story. Everyone's, you know, facts check out. We can't just have it that she gets suspended for something that she genuinely did not, um, did not do. So came back to it, head teacher sort of did a whole turnaround about the situation, apologized, student remained in school. Now, Mm. For me, that just made me think, why was it that the sanction went from here, so really low, to such a high level for a comment that was being made? And it really just started making me think about the behaviour policies and why is it that, unfortunately, black students seem to be given harsher sanctions and, Mm -hmm. you know, harsher rebukes whilst they are in school. So just for... A bit of background, just going to talk about critical race theory and my fellow sociologist here, Zion, who's, but mm-hmm. his head is already thinking. So critical race theory and the idea of whiteness. Now, there's been so much going on in terms of race and, you know, in school and with everything that has happened um, over the last few months. Now, critical race theory was basically a group of activists, lawyers, um, sociologists, educators who came together and in this was in the mid 70s and they came together and they really wanted to advance the civil rights movement that was already taking place at that time. What they were finding is that all the headway that sort of had been made, they were finding that it was starting to go a bit backwards and that they weren't their voices weren't really being heard anymore. So they set up a group in order to continue to advance um, the civil rights movements and new theories, new strategies and the I guess the groundbreakers of it um, were individuals, um, early writers, 
that were Derek Bell, Alan Freeman, and a guy called Richard Delgado. And so they came together and they began to create new strategies and really taking a look at race critically. So what they were looking at was that they were moving past sort of the biology of race and the biology of skin color. And what they were looking at is that race has actually been set up as a social construct in order to shape various societies, in order to shape what we do and what people do um, as a nation. So it actually started in the US. Um, and now it's moved into, you know, sort of a global thing in the UK mm-hmm. and it spreads into not just civil rights, but it looks at what happens in politics. It looks at what happens in education. It looks at what happens in various spheres of society. So what they had said is that with the critical race theory, it, the idea is that it's not necessarily black versus white, but it's this idea of whiteness as normal. So white people and the mm. culture of white people and you know, the things that they do, as a sense, is the norm. Anything that strays from that is other. Anything that strays from that is now a an attack, as mm. it were, or a disruption mm. to normal society. So this is where, um, you know, sort of the race talks now come into it when we now talk about things in education um, and things like that. So the idea is that it's not, like I said, it's not black and white in terms of our biology, but it's black and white in terms of a social construct, that anything that does not follow suit of white culture is disruptive. It's not normal. It's abnormal. So that's that in a nutshell. So we now know in the UK, 25th of May, George Floyd died at the hands of Minneapolis, Minneapolis Police Department. Um, And we know that police brutality, this was not a one-off event. This was Mm -hmm. not an exception to what takes place in society. We are very aware that police brutality against black males and people of color Mm -hmm. is a normal, this is is a normal thing in society. It happens a lot more than what we see in the media, than what we are actually being shown. So it's not an exception. And so police brutality has in a sense, been normalized as sort of a black person's experience. This is just something that you're going to, you know, that you're going to yeah. go through and you're going to face. And what this shows is something that, uh, the, uh, not theologist, um, philosopher, Michael um, Foucault, Michael Foucault, um, he argued that the reason why this takes place is because they are trying to perpetuate the normality of society. That being white is is normal and and black is not. So it's a play of power. And what Michael Foucault argued is that institutions, e.g. schools, can find selected groups as a method of controlling or isolating the socially undesirable. So again, Mm. going back to what was said earlier about whiteness being normal. Now, according to Foucault, Schools are institutions that teach people to respond in predictable ways. And education is a form of disciplinary power used to maintain social order. This was Foucault in a paper that he wrote in 1980. So it's been 40 years ago and we're still having, you know, this conversation now. Uh, Moreover, these practices are a direct impact on all sections of society through mass education. Foucault viewed power as a mechanism used to objectify human beings and bring order through human interactions. Power is used to define and replicate what is normal and used to enforce conformity. Now, Janai and Zion, I'm going to ask you the question. Have you ever been stopped and searched? 
Yes, I I have. I I was first stopped in search at the age of 14. Mm. Um, but at the age of 15, so a year later, was when I actually first experienced handcuffed on me. Handcuffs on me, sorry. Um, again, um, I didn't necessarily uh, tell anyone about it. I think, um, yeah, I didn't necessarily know what to do about it, basically. Mm. But funny enough, um, you know, through everything that kind of happened with George Floyd, I, I remember I was actually retelling the stories to my year sevens. Mm. Um, and it's quite interesting because, you know, one could argue are they too young to have that kind of conversation? Mm-hmm. And I think the kind of person I am is, you know, I was brutally honest um, to explain to them that, guys, like, just two years above where you are now was the first time I ever got stopped in search. And it's almost a case of, like, we are having these conversations or we should be having these conversations to prepare them mm-hmm. for the path that they will be going down, you know? So, Yeah. yeah. Zion? I haven't. Okay. Um, I haven't. Um, surprising to myself. Um, <laughs> but I've definitely had run-ins mm. um, with um, police authorities. Um, yeah. Um, but not to the level of, you know, stop and search or anything that I would consider overtly aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. But definitely have run-ins. So that is just an example of do how that racial profiling takes place. I can't understand how a 15, what would be threatening about a 15-year-old boy? I'm not quite sure why you would deem anything that you would have done. You're a child. Like, why would you deem anything that you would have done? Um, Just with that, what was, like, the circumstances as to why you were stopped and searched? Was it... Um, Yeah, so the stopped and searched, funny enough, I was actually coming from the shop with a family friend. And they said that, you know, there was a burglary burglary Mm -hmm. around the area and, you know, you kind of fit the description. And so I I think at that point I was like, what was the description Mm -hmm. or what was burglary? And so it's like, you you don't need to ask these questions, you know, just know that this is why we're doing it. Um, um, Can you open up your hands so we can search you? And with the handcuffs, um, it was actually Bonfire Night, which was a group of friends and it's a family event um and ultimately there's a group of girls um caucasian girls that was making quite a lot of noise and being like a ruckus and so on and so forth myself and a group of our friends just happened to be behind them we go past some police officers and they misheard or something like that and then they thought it was myself and my friends and then um i think at that point and which I now believe that it was an overspill of what happened the year before. Mm. I was like, no, I'm not having this anymore. So I was very much like, you know, what are you doing? Take your hands off me. Mm-hmm. So on and so then he was like, you better calm down. My friend actually said to me, like, Janoy, can you like just just calm down? Like, yeah. like, like, just just I was like, no, I'm not being calm. And then at that point, I was just like, nah. Give me your badge number. I'm taking this forever. Give me your badge number. Yeah. And I think at that point, it was like, I was almost he wasn't taking me seriously. Mm. You know, it's like, what is this young boy asking about, you know, badge number or so on and so forth? It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So we've seen, that's just one example, but I know that I've seen, or I, I, I've i actually been stopped and searched myself as a young black female. The whole scenario was just absolutely wild. I fit a profile. Mm. I was on my mm-hmm. way to football training 
I had a big bag. I am five foot four. When I asked what the profile was, oh yeah, it was um, a lad. So the <laughs> fact that you've already said lad, you've looked yeah. at me and I'm a female. Surely <laughs> that should have meant you should have stopped what you was doing. Yeah. Nope. They had continued. I was cuffed, like pushed onto the back, like bonnet of a car. Like oh it was, God. it was absolutely crazy. Um, but we, you know, just from that, you, these sort of things, you know, they're, they're daily practices. It's almost like sort of embedded in what police do. And it's not to say that all police officers are bad, but yeah. the institution of, you know, criminal justice and the um, system means that racial profiling is very, very prevalent. So what this is, Zion. Yeah, so I just wanted to, um, I was just kind of listening and I was actually looking for um, a kind of document that I kind of actually wrote on mm. this and, you know, about the kind of over policing yeah. kind of aspect. I think it's really interesting because I'm just going to kind of read a kind of excerpt or something that I wrote before. Um, when you look at the kind of education system, it's really interesting because, of course, we've seen that race was constructed, um, as you rightly said, as a tool for dominance mm-hmm. and for white supremacy. And when you consider CRT, as well as what you said, was also used in terms of law and policy to yep. um, expose and implement laws and policies that would benefit racial equity. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're looking at now education, there's something, a theory called learner identities um, and the intelligible student. And what those really begin to say, which is really interesting, is that actually the black, um, Muslim and Asian student do not fit the good people category yep. structurally. So um, what that really means is, you know, we've seen results of it, such as, you know, um, exclusion rates, detentions, missing out on exams. Um, research has actually shown that for those type of students, teachers actually cap their um, exam entrance. Um, so already their ability to attain is capped. Um, it shows that when it comes to black students, um, the expectations of academic excellence from teachers are reduced. Um, and um, Gilborn, um, one of the researchers who looks at CRT, shows that actually if this was the case of middle class students, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be the case. What's really um, interesting is considering learner identities, I think what you've shown is, you know, the kind of historical um, thread of conversation that's yep. been going on. <laughs> this baffled me when I kind of um, looked at this before. There's someone called Robert Knox um, who actually in his study... Um, I, I was mad. I was researching it like a year ago um, into black, like the term black. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a political black, which was black, you know, racially black, Chinese, Asian, anyone who was a minority, anyone mm-hmm. who was not white was counted as black. Mm-hmm. And I found that really interesting because clearly we're not all black. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you go back, I was now researching Greek writings and Homer, one of the greatest Greek philosophers, Actually, when you look at the linguistic and the literature of um, the term black was actually used in, you know, the 1600s, etc. as a term for melancholy. So feelings of heaviness, of blackness, Mm -hmm. of darkness. So in literature and Greek writings, black was equated to everything um, emotionally negative. And we see now with Robert Knox, um, he done um, a study um, on the various races, in the world and you know split them into five i believe um i don't have in front of me but the caucasian mm-hmm. um the black the afro um you can research that um but you put them into five categories and you know what he stated in his literature was that the caucasians were born in these kind of beautiful were from these beautiful um eurasia mountains mm-hmm. whereas the blacks were from 
just somewhere. Mm-hmm. So already what you see is that through literature, the term black has really been embedded in culture and linguistics as negative. Mm-hmm. So now when you take that and now you appropriate that into a system, what it shows is that actually before student actually gets into the school, the system in itself has framed them as antithetical yep. to, to what the they system. should be in yeah. the school. Mm. And now when you add teacher bias on top of that, you now see how... But what's interesting is that what the learner identities say is that the blame is on the student. So because you're black, you're angry. So literally, I've got in front of me, Archer et al. said that black um, boys, white working class boys and Muslim boys are perceived as dangerous, mm-hmm. hypersexualized and vulgar and aggressive. Mm-hmm. So the blame is on you for being black. Yeah. So what that does uh, is so mad because what it does is it now takes responsibility of systematic inequalities and puts it on you. Yeah. So rather than now policies looking at the system, mm-hmm. it says you are the problem. So this is where the prof- the prophecy the prophecy the self fulfilling prophecy comes in. Yeah. You are the problem, so you get excluded. You go into a cycle, but 100%. the structures never change, and we really kind of establish that the structures in itself. Um, see every other student apart from yep. white as you're, you don't fit the mold of mm-hmm. what education should mm-hmm. be. So I think it's just really interesting to look at how we look at policing. Her policing is always done in a context of white, white. as good yep. and black, black as, as bad. bad. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and with that, you know, and that's, you know, going on to that, that's something that is underpinned, like I said, in daily practice. So every social institution that you will come across that is the that is the narrative for every single one yeah. that white white dominance white is normal anything other than white is not and it is abnormal now question for you monica and it's a bit i want you to be as honest as possible um i want you to be really really honest in you teach in primary school um you've mentioned before that your school your students are predominantly black boys when you heard that mm. did you now start thinking about how you would change how you teach them because they're black. Because they're black. So when you heard that there was majority yeah. black boys in your in your class, did that shift, even if it's just a little bit, did that shift how you were now going to teach them? Whether it be negative or positive? I think it must have shifted in a positive mm-hmm. aspect. Um, I think how I saw it was because I'm a black teacher as well, um, I will be a good role model yeah. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. And I think... I wanted to, knowing that they were predominantly black, I wanted to affirm them even more um, that they can do what they wish to do, that because not ne- like because of their skin, it doesn't necessarily diminish what they can do in life. Um, so to answer your question, I would say as a black teacher, I, it shifted more to a positive aspect. Mm-hmm. However, in saying that, not that I had a negative mentality, but I was nervous yeah. because I was thinking like boys in themselves are, they can be terrors, yeah. you know, especially <laughs> when they're young, they can be, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think it, in the, the negative aspect that I had was, oh my gosh, how am I going to control them? Like before I started, I had so many dreams of just literally my class getting out of yep. control. And it happened mm-hmm. like in my mm-hmm. first term, my class were crazy. But I loved them very, very dearly, yeah. each and every one of them. Um, so, yeah, I would say positive and negative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can I comment on something quickly? Yes. Mm-hmm. Just what Monica said, which I think is part of the actual issue. Mm-hmm. 
in this, obviously one of the statements made was um, your thoughts originally was how can I control them? Mm. I was actually speaking to my manager yesterday when we were looking at how to embed equal equity within yeah. the program. And he said, um, a quote he got from someone I can't remember, he said that one of the issues we have in fighting racial injustice is that we look at the black man as something we have to fix rather than the system as something we have Can to fix. Can I say fix. something? It wasn't because they were yeah. black, it was yeah. because they were boys. Boy. Yep. Like that's... But, but exactly, but that's what, if you look at the research, it's that um, perception mm-hmm. of what boys mm-hmm. are in their classroom that leads but... to the... <laughs> And the research is correct. Yeah. I'm sorry, but yeah. funny enough, like with, with all the research and looking at it, that was something that was actually mentioned in terms of. So it was, you know, a, a lot of the studies were in the US because that's where you know yeah. CRT, critical race theory, had you know essentially started. And a lot of it was talking about the um, over policing of boys and the fact that they, you know, boys over girls, they already have. There's already mm-hmm. a teacher perception mm-hmm. that boys are going to be more troublesome than girls. One. And then second is Latino boys, black boys, um, Mexican boys, Native American boys are going to be more troublesome than their white counterparts. In the same way, what they've now um, researched, you know, research that's come out um, specifically in Texas. I don't know why it's Texas, but specifically in the state of Texas, that they were now looking at the over-policing of black girls. And they were looking at that. They found that um, there was now this this over-policing of black girls over black boys in terms of behavior and just like what you said zion it's this form of wanting to control Mm -hmm. in order to make sure that everything fits within this whiteness of society and so what was interesting you know something that was said is that there within school institutions now there seems to be um an increase in police um presence within schools so this is when they now started introducing um, community police officers within yes. your within schools. I say mm-hmm. your schools, but we've all seen them. They started um, introducing that. They started introducing um, behavior officers within cops. schools. Yeah. So these are the ones that rather than having SLT and teachers patrol the corridors, they have specific people that will patrol corridors in terms of behavior. And, you know, things like, I don't know, in one of the schools that I worked in, it was an academy in uh, Croydon. And they had them lining up. So before school and in between lessons, you line up in your form room, one in your form class, one straight line, and you go in line by line. And one of the parents, this was a new thing that they had implemented. And one of the parents was like, this looks like a prison. Like, why are my children lining up outside to go into the school? And so this is something that has now come into it, you know, the the over-policing within school. So we're Mm. seeing it, you know, over-policing in society with just, um, black children, black males in particular, but now we're seeing that same thing being pushed into schools and being pushed into education. And so what they said, it was a study or it was a research paper by Lamont and a few other people in 2011. And what it was saying is that this move to control student to control students in that way actually perpetuates what is called the school to prison pipeline. So it perpetuates that you already being in a disadvantaged background, you being from a disadvantaged area, the perception is that you, again, self-fulfilling prophecy, that you Mm. are going, you're more likely to be um, Mm. involved in crime. You're more likely to be excluded. You're more likely to have um, low attainment grades um, and things like that, which means that you are auto, you're you're almost going to be funneled into the prison system before you've even had, like I say, had a chance, but before Mm -hmm. you've even actually done anything to prove that that's, I guess where you should be. So all of these things perpetuate that school, what is called the school 
to prison pipeline. Yeah. And so it link it's linking schooling. So essentially it's almost like school is this um, grounds for putting particular children in the criminal system. 100%. And what that does and, and what it was talking about is just the dehumanization yeah. of you, yeah. you've now become a an entity rather yeah. than an yeah. actual human being. Yeah. So I felt again in my head, I was just like, this is actually crazy because we already know black males, specifically black Caribbean males um, in school are more likely to be excluded, more likely to be suspended. And what that means is that they mm. get kicked out of the education system. They get put in a PRU, put in an alternative mm. education and already their chances of achieving yeah. chances of achievement yeah. in general are already very, very low, which means no prospects, mm. nothing to do. As the news says, boredom leads to knife crime. Knife crime leads to gang crime. And before you know it, they're mm. in prison. So I just found that interesting as to how it all sort of links together. Now, I want to ask a question to, I'm going to ask, I don't know if it happens in primary school. I haven't seen it. Um, so I'm going to ask Janoy, actually. Have you had, so do in your school, do you have policing bodies like that? So do you have a, that sort of policing presence in your school? Yeah, um, so we have the, Community police officers. Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. so we have um, lovely chap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> lovely chap. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's great. He's great. Um, and I, I th honestly, up until today, I, I, I didn't see you know the reasons behind it, and mm -hmm. I just thought it was a case of um, or how it's been patrolled. Sorry, how it's been portrayed. Sorry, in school is that it is used um, to just build relationship mm -hmm. between the police officers and the school, especially to manage certain things mm -hmm. when the school cannot necessarily handle. So for example, um, certain criminal behaviors that takes place online in group chats mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. on social media platforms, we bring in the CPOs and so on and so forth. And they just have like a stern talking to, you know? And I think it's just the idea is like to, to get students to understand that wow, you're talking to a police officer, yeah. like what you're doing is criminal is criminal behavior yeah, kind of thing. Um, but I think, yeah, it, it, the way it's been portrayed is that it's a, you know, it's just to build the morale and the safety of yeah. everyone in the school. Which which it is, and that mm -hmm. that that is part of the reason um as to why it's why it's there. But I remember um in a school that I worked in when I was a, a teaching assistant, actually. So mm -hmm. Um, and they had their, they had their pastoral department, but then they had an entire behavioral department. And in this department was the head of years were part of it. Um, and the, um, uh, the leads on teaching and learning. But then there was also a specific group. They weren't teaching assistants, but it was a spe specific group of staff who were behavior officers. So they literally roamed the corridors of the school. And if anyone was out of line, sir, ma'am, what are you doing? Why are you out of lesson? Why are you going here? Why are you going there? So it was all of that stuff. And when I, I when I think about it now, I thought, how scary must that be? Like you just, you know, little year seven. I just thought, little year seven child, you, you know, you're not necessarily doing something bad. You've just gone to go and do something. And the first thing that you're being asked is, why are you here? It's not a, it was not like a, What's the word that I want to use? It wasn't like a conversation. It was just immediately you've just been interrogated for something that you may not actually be aware that you've done something wrong. And what I also found interesting is that with this school in particular, it was a well-known community school in Dulwich. Dulwich is a very affluent area. 
And now even with the school, it was very much, um, what's the word? I want to use a better word, but the only word that's coming to my head is it was very much a white school. So as much as there were, um, it was diverse in the sense of student population. So there were a lot of um, black students, mm -hmm. Asia, or let me just say BAME students, mm -hmm. so black, Asian, um, and other ethnic minorities. It was very much trying to fit the middle-class white no, ethos. And that's something that I found, especially in my teacher training, that's something that I found that actually most schools do. I don't actually know mm. any schools mm -hmm. that sort of, I guess, embrace the cultural differences that there are within a multi-diverse multi school in London. In mm. London, you are not going to find, you know, a school that is all white students. You are, they, they may be predominantly white, but you yeah. are going to find students of other ethnic backgrounds. And I just found it interesting that even now, that was almost six, seven, no, that was like eight years ago. Yeah. And even now that like, you know, what Zion was saying, that structure still hasn't shifted yeah. and that still hasn't changed. And so it was just interesting for me when I look back at these things as to how, you know, how, how it's still, you know, these things are still going on. But what I, I say that to say that essentially what this is doing, it's still perpetuating that power play. That the way that behavior is done in schools, the way that behavior policies are, the way that behavior management um, is done still perpetuates that form of power because it's very much punishment over reconciliation and, you know, restoration of a relationship. So it was very common. So it was things like in schools now, you find that the discretion of how a child is punished is not necessarily based on the behavior in itself, but it's almost based on like how the behavior is done. I'll give an example. It's quite a, it's an Afro-Caribbean thing to kiss your teeth. Now that's deemed as being rude. And I wouldn't even say an Afro-Caribbean thing, but it's quite an, uh, it's an urban thing to do to just, you know, kiss your teeth. And mm -hmm. I found that in school policies, it has said if you kiss your teeth, that is deemed as rude, disruptive, disrespectful behavior that warrants a sanction. Now, I know I don't kiss my teeth at people. Like, I, I know that that's rude. But mm -hmm. in frustration, there has been times when, uh, me being frustrated with myself, there has been times when I've been like, ah, oh, sure. I haven't done it at anybody. It hasn't been aimed at anybody. Yeah. It's just in frustration. Now, I've seen that happen with a, a student. Me, myself, I've recognized sort of the cultural background of it and where it has come from and I've left it alone that student's done it again in front of a different teacher and that teacher has immediately called on that student and said that was rude bearing in mind it wasn't aimed at anybody it wasn't mm. aimed at another student it wasn't aimed at the teacher it was frustration in herself because she had done something wrong on her paper and she was frustrated with herself and immediately that student was called up and you know sanctioned and she got a detention for kissing her teeth and it wasn't even kissing her teeth she just said ah oh, and that was it. And she got sanctioned and given a detention for that. Now, Janoy is looking at me like, yeah, but it's, it's kind of rude. It's but very rude. I like, want to... If a ch like, children in my class, mm -hmm. they kiss their teeth, whether it's at me or not, it's rude. And I told them off. Because okay. you shouldn't be doing that. But what if that is there, and this is me playing advocate in this, what if it's not intended mm. to be rude and it's mm -hmm. actually not rude, it's just a cultural difference? Yeah. Yeah. Because if they had done that, and this is me just, just putting it out there, mm -hmm. say now if they had done that in the context of, yeah, if they had done that in the context of a non, 
white school again it's not aimed at anybody it's just a sound that has come out out of frustration out of them being frustrated with themselves why is it that that is now deemed rude in the context that we are in is it that it is actually rude or is that just a cultural difference that doesn't quite fit with the context of schools in england that that's just a question that i've had to ask myself and i've had to be and this is not something that happened you know first year of teaching said like i've had to just look at it and be like okay yeah it it may not be rude i can understand why it would be deemed as rude in this context but actually what you did was not something that warranted that level of of sanction like you said that's that's something that you can say to the student okay we don't do that in this classroom it doesn't warrant an entire and bearing in mind it was not the first level of sanction this was a friday detention so somebody got a friday detention for something that was not aimed at anybody it yeah. wasn't aimed at another student. It's just out of frustration and their cultural background. Mm. That's just what they did. So I just found that really, really interesting that that was where it mm. went to. And what I'm what I'm alluding to is that, is it now that the differences in culture now denote criminality? That That's where mm. I'm going to. So I think it's, it's a real, really, really good question. Like mm. when you look at Foucault, there's a... Um, theory he kind of posed called discipline and punish mm-hmm. um which you know and i think this is very interesting because what he says is that you know in order to reform and mold people into societal citizens you need discipline and punishment so that is what really kind of informed you know prison systems and mm-hmm. the methods they use and again that's what informs places like young offenders institutes and people feral units and this is where you made a point about actually looking at rehabilitation, educational rehabilitation. Um, and what's really interesting about this is that the moulding, as you kind of pointed already, is to the narrative of the whiteness. Foucault came up with something called panopticon. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yes. It's crazy. Like I, when I've learned this, like the school system, like even like buildings architecturally were based off prison. Like it's so interesting. The people, same people who built schools were the people who built prisons. Wow. And it's interesting that the whole in 1996, um, the Department of Education actually um, put forward to the government that they should increase um, fortified windows, um, these huge, um, what do you call it, fences outside of schools, um, the long kind of corridors with even the, the school bell to tell you when to leave, when not to mm-hmm. leave. Um, even the introduction of these red coats or policing um, were all kind of tools used to now begin to bring level of control, control. Um, into the school. So I think for me, it's really interesting where you ask that question because I think it's such a great question because as you kind of rightly kind of showed, the cultural differences, cultural differences that and the dual identities that a child brings into the school arena are not accounted for when we're looking at discipline within the school. And I think that's a problem because then... It, no wonder we see the high rates of exclusion for certain demographics mm-hmm. because the school system in itself is not designed to recognize, appreciate, or even learn about the, you know, the differences, mm-hmm. the cultural differences that actually um, take place in the school. And I think that's a problem because what that, that that means is that the school is only going to work for some. Some. And, and that's an issue. for others. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. I just wanted to put that out there just to sort of give the different mm-hmm. aspects of behavior management and what is now taking place in schools in terms of policing, in terms of um, correction, in terms of discipline. Now, 
with behavior management and Monica, I'm going to go to you. Do you think that suspension, isolation and exclusion should be part of behavior management policies? Um, yeah, I think they should. Um, but I think that they should be done in context. Mm -hmm. Um, I think some schools take it out of context. I think some schools um, suspend, isolate children um, for the smallest of reasons. Um, it happened to me when I was in secondary school. Um, the issue that, you know, arose wasn't something that I should have been excluded for. Mm -hmm. And I think some schools take advantage of the fact that they have behavior exclusion as their behavioral management policy. Mm -hmm. Um and I think sometimes they, it's that whole power play. Mm -hmm. um, it's the whole fact that because it's in my behavior policy, I can use it whenever, mm -hmm. whenever I want to. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the behavior of a child is almost subjective in the sense of depending on who, depending on who is in charge of that child's behavior or um, I'll put it in this way. So let's say Billy did a, like Billy did something in school um, and it was the head teacher that was in position that day. Mm -hmm. So how she sees his behavior um, will depend on whether she chooses to exclude him or not. Mm. Whereas there could be, Billy might do something, but however, it might be the deputy head that's in on that mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. So how she sees Billy's behavior may not be worthy of exclusion. Yeah. So I think it should be there as a, as a type of sanction. Cause I do believe that some students mm -hmm. do terrible things in school mm -hmm. um, and they do need to learn yeah. some, you know, some sort of discipline, um, you know, as, you know, just, just in general, as a general life mm -hmm. skill mm -hmm. um, or a life lesson, I should say. So, yeah, I think it should be put there, but I just think that schools really need to consider in what context are they going to use exclusions, yeah. isolations, etc. hundred percent. Janine? Yeah, um, I'm so um, happy that you actually mentioned the fact that it's a very much, it's a subjective thing. Mm. Um, having it on the behaviour policy, um, you know, one school or one teacher may not deem it as mm. so severe, whereas other teachers may, you know, deem it as severe. Mm -hmm. um, I am fortunate enough to have had experiences working in schools where, you know, I have seen the, uh, the full enforcement of punitive just. Is justice right to say? No, P punitive, punitive discipline. Yeah. Discipline, justice. <laughs> punitive <laughs> discipline. And I've also um, you know, worked in schools where restoration is first and foremost put forth before you know it goes to mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. more severe sanctions yeah. and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I think um restoration and when a school embraces restoration they're actually what it shows is that they're actually willing to not give up on the students mm -hmm, learning mm -hmm. they're not you know willing to kind of um give up on you know the the fact that you need to be in school because yeah. any mm -hmm. option outside of it i could already predict the route that you're going to go down yeah. Yeah. um but you know let's not get it twisted here in the sense that just because a school has gone down that route, mm. they still have the exclusion and so on and so yeah. forth in the mm -hmm. sense of, because they do understand that some kids will not respond to yeah. restorative mm -hmm. conversations. Yeah. And I think in that element, um, um, you know, I understand. 
So mm. um, I, I think for me going forward, whichever, wherever I might end up, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I'm, I've learned to value restor- restorative, mm-hmm. restorative conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Zion. Just to make it brief, I yeah, completely agree with everything Janoy said. I think I can see the rationale behind it. Um, I think what I would probably love to look at is, as Monica you know, highlighted, how standardised that is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that is being um, yeah, played out in, you know, different schools. I'd love to see information on that because rightly said, you know, my behaviour to maybe um, an African teacher will not be classed as anything mm-hmm. and may actually be banter to them or yep. whatever. Mm-hmm. But to a white teacher, maybe, you know, um, and I Fishing think me. Yeah. Yeah. or I, even the opposite way as well it, it yeah. could be the opposite yeah and I think that I think that's a problem yeah again because for me it then poses a question as does the student know who they should be who within the classroom 100% and, and I think that's another yeah. complexity that when you look at these areas of discipline um, yeah I think there's a lot of questions that I would like to ask um, so completely agree with what Juno said and sorry, just to add, I think what schools need is just consistency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because some schools that I've been in, they're just not consistent. Teachers are doing different things. Yeah. Yes, the behavior policy is there, but they're using their like bias mm-hmm. to decide on what they're going to do. So the word is consistency for the schools. Oh, so 100%. Yeah. And yeah. that's actually something that um, Bordeaux, another researcher that he actually mentioned, again, these papers were talking like 1986 and 1991. What he said is that them, the children come to be, children being defined by doing the wrong thing is highly problematic because their behaviours that are deemed as disruptive and challenging, they have to be contextual. It cannot be that, um, you know, it it becomes subjective, like you said, to the teacher because of biases, because of different teacher um, perceptions and children because of how the structure of school is set up children are deemed to be children that are deemed to be displaying alternative social and cultural capitals in schools are already strongly discouraged from doing so and then ultimately they become punished because of it not Mm -hmm. because of not because the child in themselves is inherently bad but what they are displaying is something that is um adverse or not the norm so yeah um gonna bring it um to a close because a lot of things have been mentioned and i think that leads in nicely to what i would what would be our water cooler wisdom um Mm -hmm. for this episode and one of the things is that behavior policies rightly so as monica mentioned consistency behavior policies actually have to be consistent but be consistent in that they advocate for change and advocate for the different contexts and the different um cultures that all that children have so, you know, they have to sort of move away from the Eurocentric behavior mm. being normal. They have to move away from white being mm. normal. Otherwise, you are going to find that students who are not of, and not even white, like I said, not white biologically, but not of a white culture, not of the middle class culture and middle class structure, they are going to be penalized unfairly because of the behaviors that they may display because of differences in culture. Um, again, restorative, we need to move to, especially as teachers and educators and in schools, we need to move to respirate, respirative, <laughs> restorative disciplinary, disciplinary programs. So we need to move away from punishment and, you know, sort of 
that black and white reward and sanction and we need to move to now you know something that Janoy mentions all the time is strengthening relationships we need to move to that reconciliation um, and restoration of um, relationships and then also even in teacher training I think this is something that actually needs to be um, put forth in terms of CPD so this is continuing professional development and also in initial teacher training there needs to be something that sort of addresses our biases, whether conscious or unconscious, um, so that we are aware that these things can actually affect how we um, discipline children, how we um, manage behavior in a classroom, and so that we don't play out these biases and play out these common, you know, um, perceptions in our teaching, and Mm -hmm. we don't project them onto um, our students, uh, because what that does, it now does fulfill it's the self-fulfilling prophecy if we're already thinking like this without yeah. even knowing it when we get into schools the way that we do yeah. things is actually going to project that yeah. without us realizing and the child will go away or the student will go away feeling like this is all that i am then i am yeah. i am my behavior if, yeah. if that yeah. makes sense yeah. so yeah this was a heavy one <laughs> this was a, a, a heavy podcast and there's probably a lot um mm-hmm. to go away and you know think about but thank you for being part of it thank you um for listening but again this conversation definitely does not stop here because again there is so much um in it so we want to thank you again for listening and like i said the conversation does not stop here we are on all streaming platforms we are on youtube and follow us on twitter instagram and youtube at limits podcast and until next time guys we're out